That's What She Said is presented by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Laughter Permitted with Julie Foudy is back with season six from incredible conversations with five-time Olympic gold medalist and four-time WNBA champion Sue Bird to insights from Julie's life on and off the field. Check out Laughter Permitted wherever you get your podcasts. Our annual NBA opening night doubleheader is Wednesday, October 20th. Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, and the Celtics are at Madison Square Garden to take on Julius Randle, former Celtic Kemba Walker, and the Knicks at 7.30 Eastern, 4.30 Pacific. Then it's our primetime West Coast game with reigning MVP Nikola Jokic and the Nuggets in Phoenix squaring off against Devin Booker, Chris Paul, and the Suns, last season's Western Conference champs. Two great matchups to tip off the NBA season on ESPN and the ESPN app. One app, one tap. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here, talking to me. I'm Pete Croato, and my dilemma is, how the hell do we end this pandemic? Oh, Pete, well, you know, I appreciate the faith you've put in me as the commish to handle a problem so big, so unwieldy, so complicated. Would that I could end the pandemic or even begin to know how to get through to those who are still fighting mask wearing and vaccine getting and, you know, caring for the greater good of friends and family and strangers and all of humanity. But instead of a fix, today you'll just get a nod of agreement. I'd like to be past it too. Uh, so for now, I guess we stick with guidelines, we get our boosters, we trust in science, and we continue to have kind but firm conversations with the people who are resisting being a part of the solution. That's what she said. If I sound a little different, I'm recording from a hotel room in lovely San Diego as I get ready for this year's ESPNW Summit. Super excited for the panels that I'm doing this year. Incredible, incredible people, including getting to do an interview with Sarah McLaughlin before she performs for all of us. Her first performance anywhere in 20 months. Uh, so it's going to be fantastic. Some great business leaders, team owners, incredible athletes. Uh, the lineup is great this year. So if you're listening to this right when the podcast came out, know that you can stream it live as it's happening. If you go to ESPNWSummit.com, you can register for free. If you're listening to this later, after the summit is over, you'll be able to get all of the panels on demand in a bunch of places. So go to ESPNWSummit.com for more information. This week's guest is author and freelance journalist Pete Croato, who's written for places like Grantland, The New York Times, GQ.com, Men's Journal, SI.com, and RollingStone.com. His book, From Hang Time to Prime Time, Business, Entertainment, and the Birth of the Modern-Day NBA, explores the NBA's surge in popularity in the 70s and 80s and its transformation into a global cultural institution. The 2021-22 NBA season is just getting underway, so what better time to revisit the changemakers whose savvy business decisions made the NBA what it is today. As I celebrate my Chicago Sky winning their first WNBA championship in the league's 25th season, whoop whoop, it's also worth looking at the nascent years of the NBA, the early years, remembering not only that the league's rise wasn't inevitable, but that it was gradual. As we critique young leagues like, say, the WNBA or the NWSL, MLS, uh, we would be wise to compare them to the early years of today's top leagues. Uh, and Pete and I discussed that, plus incredible facts about Larry O'Brien, how Watergate is connected to the NBA, tape delayed finals back in the day, 
David Stern's wise mantra that led the way to major change and more. Enjoy the interview. That's what she said. We've decided to briefly put aside our differences. The Knicks, the Bulls, John Starks, Michael Jordan, Ithaca, Cornell side of Ithaca, in order to have this conversation about a great book from hang time to prime time, which I'm telling you, I, I know a lot about basketball and particularly certain eras of basketball because I actually wrote a college thesis on Michael Jordan and the globalization of basketball through cable television. And I remember diving into a lot of the stuff that came around that part in the book, but there was so much that I learned from this. And I'm so excited to talk to you about it and hopefully pique the curiosity of those who also want to learn more about the early days of the league. But I want to ask you before we get to the book itself, Pete, tell us a little bit more about yourself, where you grew up, what kind of kid were you, what'd you want to do? Oh, thanks, Sarah. Yeah, uh, I grew up um, in Aberdeen, New Jersey, Central Jersey. Folks that are familiar with pop culture might know it as sort of uh, Bruce Springsteen, Kevin Smith, Clerks territory. Okay. So very. I, I was wasn't very... even supposed to be here today. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so I was there a long time in Central New Jersey. So I grew up there, and I was, I was a very studious, worried kid, and I got, I took a lot of solace in sports playing them, reading about them, watching them. And yeah, you know, I, I've I spent a majority of my time in Central Jersey, moved around a little bit. And now, as you alluded to in, in that introduction, I'm based just out, outside of Ithaca, New York, where my wife teaches at uh, Ithaca College. So um, I'm glad we're able to reach an accord to talk <laughs> amicably, um, despite despite our, 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 our rivalry. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. No actual rivalry with Ithaca College. Yes. Uh, but there, what, it is always funny to think that it's not a big town. And yet there's like the Cornell half and the Ithaca Commons. And you might go there to go to a restaurant or a shop. But like mm -hmm. you party up here and you party down there. What a waste. There was a whole nother college worth of young nubile bodies to explore that we all sort of missed out on because we were in our own little areas. Um, maybe I'm speaking for myself maybe everybody else explored the new bio bodies of the of the other co-eds but uh, we, we were stuck up on our hill um a legitimate hill not a not a metaphorical one I'm, I'm sure some people at Cornell were in a metaphorical one as well though um so let's talk about your career sure. and you know writing what what did it start with and was it always going to be sports it, it wasn't going to be sports believe it or not I wanted to be a movie reviewer I that was my dream when I was 12 years old and I read a collection of Robert uh, Roger Ebert reviews the best that, it hooked me and I was like I, this is what I want to do I want to write as well as Roger Ebert and write in a way that's that's eloquent but also approachable and just kind of you know is about really the human experience more than it is you know what whatever film was 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 coming out that Friday so yeah I worked toward that goal for a very long time I started writing reviews for my high school newspaper, which no one should look up because they're terrible. <laughs> and then I went into uh, the, I went to the college of New Jersey, started writing for my college paper. And then after that, I ran to brick walls because it was, I graduated uh, from the college of New Jersey uh, in 2000. And it's right when the internet was starting to become an outlet for movie reviews and blogs and websites and all that good stuff. Mm. So the opportunities to make a living, in my experience as a film critic, just evaporated. So I spent about a good 15 years just reviewing every terrible movie you could possibly think of. There was a weekend where I actually sat through Baby Geniuses 2 and Anacondas <laughs> 2 
Oh, and I think I got paid like 15 bucks for writing those two reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually, you know, I made my way to sports because I was a freelance writer and I wanted to write more about my passions and my interests. And sports just seemed like a perfect outlet for that. And I certainly paid more than, you know, writing movie reviews um, of whatever Geniston Aniston movie was coming out that weekend. I love that. It's it's too bad because it's always hard when you like have this dream and then mm-hmm. you go out into the world and you're like, nobody wants this, but this is the <laughs> thing I want to do. Nobody wanted my movie reviews. That was just, that was the thing. I was thinking about this recently. And I think the most I got paid for a movie review was I think $200. Wow. Which sounds pitiful, but at it the is, time it felt like a lot. It felt like a briefcase full of cash at that time. (laughs) And it just, but yeah, you're right. It was, and the thing is, and I've written about this, as I got older, I didn't get any better as a movie reviewer. My opinions weren't sharp. I wasn't as interested in film. So you could admit that. I was flatlining and, and, and all these, and there are tons of reviewers right now who are young, they're cautious, they know film history. And I, and I would read the reviews. And I'm like, man, these guys are running circles around. Yeah. And that's I also just, another terrible feeling when you see someone else's work and you're like, I should probably stop doing this. I'm like, <laughs> this is not for me if that's what it's supposed to look like. So how do you then transition to, you know, sports then? Because it's not like that's an easy business to get into. Yeah, it's it's funny. I kind of found it easier to get into. And I don't know why that was I me. Mean, it started. I think the start came in about 20. Well, two, I did a few things for Deadspin, the old Deadspin, not the one that was taken over by, by corporate raiders. Um, so I, I did a couple of pieces for them. And then kind of on a whim, I sent a pitch to Grantland, you know, which, which at that time was just, you know, a wonderful pop culture and, and sports site. And I sent a pitch about looking back at Marvin Gaye's national anthem at the 1983 NBA All-Star Game. Now, at this time, I had zero clips of note. I had little experience. I had like no MBA connections. I was. What you know, were you doing to make money? Oh, what was I doing to make money? I was running a blog for. No, I said to make money. Oh, I, said, I, what? I no, I'm, I'm getting to that. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. I was like a blog. No way. So you well, didn't eat. Yes way. <laughs> yes way. Because here's because this is what happened. I, I was before I, I, I embarked on my freelance writing career. I was a trade magazine editor for a publication called VRM Inc. in East Brunswick, New Jersey. If you haven't heard of it, you are not alone. (laughs) So I was there for about three or four years and I just got tired of the job. It was just a very demanding, low paying, low quality of life job. So I quit, decided to freelance. And part of my freelancing was writing for that field, writing for natural, for the supplement industry, natural products. So a friend of mine, uh, Heather Granado, who was a at a rival publication said, Hey, you know, we have this blog that's starting. Can you run it for us? So that's how okay, I made so my money. So that's where the paycheck comes in. Yes. But you pitched to Grantland about yes. Marvin Gaye and that's your first foray into the sports world. Yeah. Amazingly against their better judgment. <laughs> uh, Sarah Larimer, who's the editor at the time agreed, said yes. And I began a, uh, a pants shitting endeavor to write a 2,500 <laughs> word story for a very prestigious publication without really having that experience. So yeah. And from that point on, you know, it was just connecting with other writers, connecting with the editors and growing from there. But Grantland, I think was the first step because that was the, Hey, I've done this. Here's my proof. So let me write for you. And then it was Philadelphia magazine doing a brief profile of Melissa Stark there and New York times and slam and, and vice sports and so on. 
So let's talk about the book now that we yeah. know how you meandered your way into the to the world of of sports. But it's perfect because it ends up that that Marvin Gaye little foray uh, ends up being a big part of maybe what interests you in the formative days of the, of the NBA and and this book itself. I loved reading some of the quotes from my colleagues on Around the Horn, like Bob Ryan and Jackie Mack and Woody Page. <laughs> Woody Page wrote in 1977, and I'm like, God, I know he's old. I know he's been at it forever, but it's still like, honestly, your book is going to make me show up for shows with those folks with a little more reverence. Not that I didn't have it before, right? but it everything's so in the moment that when I actually think about them writing about a nascent NBA, a young, still forming yeah. NBA, it kind of blows my mind. Everything feels so long ago and it really wasn't that long ago that all of this was just coming together and becoming something legitimate um i grew up with the nba being the biggest thing going and mm -hmm. so it's always wild to read about what it was like before so before we get to the details mm -hmm. why did you decide this topic and this book and right now well i think you you just mentioned it it, it was i grew up uh, I'm 44 and I started becoming, I became an NBA fan right around 1990, 1991. And at that point, the NBA was in full ascension. You had the NBA and NBC, which was on all the time. It was promoted nonstop. Michael Jordan was starting his run of dominance with the six championships and was just, you know, America's pitch man. So I, like you, I came in with an NBA that was just everywhere. I never heard of there being problems and issues and a lack of popularity. And, you know, being a, a, bookish nerdy nerdy kid and a bookish nerdy adult I began reading everything I get my hands on about the NBA you know when I was 13 14 15 as an adult just reading as much as I could to kind of understand the history because I fully believe that to understand the present to appreciate what you love in the present you should go back to the past to see what happened so yeah. in reading about you know going back reading all these you know all these biographies and great books like uh mentioned Jackie Mack, her, her book on um, Bird and Magic is great. You know, Bob Ryan's Bird is great. And in reading these books, there was always a quick mention of how the NBA was on shaky ground back in the 70s and early 80s. Oh, you know, the TV ratings were low. Oh, there's a drug problem, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, well, there really isn't anything that I can find about that period of time where the NBA kind of, you know, shook off its training wheels and kind of, you know, raced off to these like, amazing heights. So, you know, as I got older, I started to think, well, you know, that where's that book? And then when I wrote the Marvin Gaye piece, it kind of came together because I thought to myself, how in the world do we get Marvin Gaye singing the national anthem in this very different, soulful, non-traditional style? How did that happen? What happened that got us there? And what happened afterward? And in writing that, that story, that story for Grantland, there was so much I couldn't put in. There was so much that just intrigued me that I thought, oh, man, there's a book here. You just had me thinking, and it's not the same, but certainly the NBA was plagued by racism early on. And a lot of the rules were mm -hmm. affected by white people who were uncomfortable with these powerful black bodies coming in and doing things they'd never seen before. And they were like, no, 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 no that's not basketball. And for, to go from that to this acceptance of, of the joy around Marvin Gaye's performance, I, I know it's not the same, but you just had my brain ticking. Yeah. I want someone to do behind the scenes on how we go from Kaepernick blackballed to end racism in the end zone to mm -hmm. Snoop, Kendrick Lamar, Mary J and Eminem <laughs> as the Super Bowl halftime. Like there's there's a, there's something there about how it takes almost like this radical act of offense 
before there's a clearing of the garbage and then mm -hmm. and but then also to look into whether that rebirth is is faux or actually rooted in a changed perspective and i think uh this book certainly gets into the details on that one of the most fascinating and i want to start at the very sure. beginning sure. because larry o'brien or as <laughs> Kawhi would say i believe the larry ob uh, I <laughs> do not know anything about him except for he is the name of the trophy and he was a commissioner at one mm -hmm. point. Yes. This background on him is fascinating. Mm -hmm. First of all, it starts with just the very simple Larry O'Brien had orchestrated and endured a lifetime of societal change. He had directed the senatorial campaign <laughs> of JFK. He was a former bartender and then ran a Massachusetts congressman's campaign and then created this, you know, book of 64 mm -hmm. bound pages that was a blueprint for all the campaigns to follow. And you write about him, his his room at the Watergate was the yeah. one that was broken into yeah. and that scandal, like all of these things are not things I would ever connect to anyone that was in charge of the NBA at any point. So for those uh, who need a little teaser to get into this book, there's a lot on Larry O'Brien and, and how he was part of this massive change for the league. But give us some more interesting background on Larry O'Brien. Yeah, I'm glad you brought Larry O'Brien up because to me, he's sort of the overlooked hero of the book and also in the NBA's history over the last 50 years. Back in the 1960s, Larry O'Brien was a legitimate political celebrity. I mean, we have political celebrities now, but back in the 1960s, he, he was on the cover of Time magazine. I mean, he was part of JFK's inner circle. I mean, he was on the plane with JFK's body when it flew mm. from, from Dallas back to Washington, D.C. So he was somebody who was just, you know, he had his finger on the pulse of American politics. And he was a, a Democratic Party figurehead for years. Lifer, and yeah. the one thing about this book that I thought was fascinating to research was that if you ask maybe 100 people who are, I guess, well-read and into politics, maybe 10 of them will tell you who Larry O'Brien is. They'll be able to tell you. But it's so funny just how quickly someone can go from relevance to irrelevance to completely forgotten. And Larry O'Brien in 1975, when he took over the NBA commissioner position, was at a point where he was just, he was on the wane. His influence as a political mover and shaker wasn't there anymore. And taking the NBA commissioner position was actually a step down for him which is incredible if you think about it. Now, if, you're the, if you become a commissioner of any major sports league now, that's a pinnacle for a professional career. But for Larry O'Brien, it was a step down. And he had to be actually cajoled and convinced to take the job. They almost tricked him. Yes. They literally yeah. took a meeting <laughs> and they took a meeting that was supposed to be just like a nice lunch or breakfast. And at the end, well, we look forward to you accepting. Wait, what? Doing yeah. what? And then they already had calls in to the press to <laughs> announce it. And it, wait, it was like when the Chicago Bears announced their new head coach without the deal being done. And then he yeah. said, wait a minute. I didn't like how this went down. I'm out. And then they'd say, yeah. never mind. Not but our coach. Yeah. But that's how desperate the NBA was to get somebody who was a headliner. And it just shows you that this was headline news for the NBA, but it didn't involve a player. It didn't involve a player or a game or anything that would be considered noteworthy on SportsCenter, you know, as a highlight. But just getting Larry O'Brien into that role, into the NBA commission position, was a giant deal for the league because the league didn't really have any good news to hang its hat on. It was almost an afterthought in a lot of ways. I mean, believe it or not, and, and I find this remarkable now, ABC was actually had NBA games. It's part of its AB, NBA deal, pardon me, was that it would run its games after the college football season ended. Like yeah. it was, it was, I mean, weeks ABC, later, weeks yeah. later. And ABC was 
a- ABC ran like wild world of, wide world of sports and superstars, these sort of, you know, superstars being this athletic competition featuring professional athletes in events they, they're not accustomed to. Like, right. for example, Joe Frazier running the hundred yard dash. I remember the later yeah. versions of that because I always remember that my favorite at the time was Herschel Walker. Oh, doing, Herschel. He'd like run up a wall or like do a yeah. rope thing. I think that had a different name, but it was essentially the same concept. Yeah, exactly. It was a bunch of athletes from pro sports doing things mm-hmm. outside the norm. Right. But superstars trounced NBA coverage. It was like, yeah. trounced we can't it. take and that off the air for NBA. We have no. to wait and run it weeks later. Well, yeah, so actually, it's this crazy. Is one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about. Yeah. Because I had this guy on my podcast and regular listeners will remember David Berry, B-E-R-R-I is his name. And we talked about the early years of the NBA and how few remember that they had incredible problems with attendance. It was mm-hmm. literally tacked on as the second half of a doubleheader with a college game. And they would cross their fingers and hope that people would mm-hmm. come to the game for the college game and then decide to stick around and see what was happening. Some of the biggest names and the most famous legends of the game did the things they did in front of 3000 fans. Yeah. And the reason I care about that is because when we talk about nascent women's league, so often yes. we're unwilling to actually revisit the realities of the early years of men's leagues. We expect the women's leagues without any history or nostalgia or investment, most mm-hmm. importantly, to be at the same level of something that spent decades and decades building up enough cachet to be the leaders in the sports world, the way the NBA and the NFL are. And, I think it's important to go back and remember. And one of the lines in your book is the NBA was no longer just a time killer for arena between hockey games. That blows our mind now as the NHL tries to get back to really being part Mm -hmm. of the big four as it sort of slips behind soccer and other things. So tell me more what you learned about the early years of the NBA when they didn't need a super savvy commish because they didn't have a TV deal and people weren't watching it live and it was just learning its way. Yeah, the NBA was really, this is what's amazing to me. I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the history of it because I think there's a tendency for people to, especially now, with sports that everything should just be ready for prime time and have massive ratings and be ready to go. And you hear about this all the time, the WNBA, the WNBA is only 25 years old. If it's even, if it's even that old, yeah, it's 25. And so I'm always, it always kind of annoys me when pundits say, well, you know, the ratings for the WNBA games are, I don't know what voice this is. It's pundit voice. Um, <laughs> the ratings aren't as high as they should be. What, you know, what's happening. And I feel like saying, if you look at the NBA, after 25 years, it was still struggling. I mean, the issues that I just out, we just outlined the getting trounced by superstars and right. and and having you know having a terrible television deals that happened in that same time frame. So these things take time. And back in the in the in the 40s and 50s, I'd recommend uh, listeners read a, a great book called 24 Seconds to Shoot by Leonard Coppett, which outlines the early days of the NBA. Terry Pluto's, uh, what's the name of that? Tall Tales is an excellent look at those early days. But back in the early days, the NBA was really regional. If you look at the teams, there wasn't any team that went past the West of Minneapolis or or St. Paul with the the Lakers. It was a very regional league. And really, it was almost an appetizer. A lot of NBA games were paired with Harlem Globetrotter exhibitions. Yeah, they were the big draw. Exactly. The NBA wasn't the draw. No one was going was going to see Bob Pettit. They were going to go see, you know, whoever was playing for the Globetrotters, Curly Neal or, or whomever. Metal Ark Lemon. Or Metal Ark Lemon. <laughs> but there wasn't the sophistication, the business sophistication that we and, now take And for that's granted. what the book gets into, which is fascinating, because yeah. we do mm-hmm. all hear the narrative around, well, it was Magic, it was Bird, it was mm-hmm. Jordan, it was these guys, right? 
But there were some tremendous guys before that that could have mm-hmm. done the same if it had been paired with the business savvy and the yep. marketing ideas. So quickly to your point yep. before we move on, there's a great sure. line in here um, of one of the higher ups, how cheap they were early on and how how small of a endeavor it all was. Uh, the idea that you would order two days worth of ice for an NBA event. Why couldn't you just save it for the next day? Like <laughs> just try to save as much, like don't spend too much on ice. Right. Which yeah. sounds so absurd at this point, knowing what we know about the league. Okay. So yeah. one of the biggest things of course was the merger quote unquote mm-hmm. merger yeah. of the ABA and NBA. And you do a, and one of the best parts about this book is, and I remember reading on the back of it, almost everyone noted the journalism and the research that went in. And I thought everyone's really harping on this. And then I start reading it and there's these incredible quotes from so many different sources, whether Mm -hmm. those are documents that you went back and found quotes in other books, quotes from people who were in the room talking about what happened in the boardroom Mm -hmm. and that quote unquote merger, which was more of a hostile takeover (laughs) uh, was really, there was some late night, theatrics sort of pull Mm -hmm. that made it clear you're either joining us or it's kind of over for you. And we're going to figure out how to make this happen so that the NBA can steal the glitz and glamor and shine and appeal of so many of the players that were at that point in the ABA. Mm -hmm. The ABA really had no choice. They had to play ball with the NBA and Larry O'Brien to his credit made that very clear. I mean, the, the anecdote that I think is is one of my favorites is from a Frank DeFord uh, story that was in Sports Illustrated because he was he was there covering the quote unquote merger. It was late in the negotiations, and you know the AB and the NBA be back and forth, back and forth, and it was like Friday at three o'clock, and Larry O'Brien basically said, "Okay, up or down," meaning if you want to get out of here with your paychecks yeah. for your teams and to close this deal. Like take this deal now, and that means you get that means four teams go. We're not taking the Spurs of St. Louis. We're not taking the Colonels. We're not taking the Memphis Claws. We're just get, we're going to end this. And really, that speaks, I think, to Larry O'Brien's presence and what he brought to the table. Because, and I detail this in the book, and this is no secret. NBA meetings with owners and the former commissioner before uh, Larry O'Brien, Jay Walter Kennedy, were just brutal. Like there was just carping and a lion and a. And, uh, well, Kennedy had his allegiances. And- not just that, but you said Kennedy lacked the proper gravitas. He'd host owners, his employers <laughs> in his hotel suite, barefoot and in yes. pajamas. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that doesn't sound like someone who's presenting it as this uh, worldwide, potentially global, eventually league. No, it it, it wasn't. But la- but again, and that's why I think Larry O'Brien's hiring is so important. It's for two, and for two reasons. First, he lends that credibility. He's not an NBA guy. He's not someone who's been in the league since the 1950s. He's not somebody who was hanging out with Brett Arbach and Ben Kerner. He was brought in to, to do a job, which was to basically kind of provide, I guess, law and order. So he did that. I mean, meetings with Larry O'Brien ran smoothly. And the well, other thing, Larry O'Brien, from the political side, there I you mean, go. Whether you can you could disparage it all you want, rightfully so in some ways, but he came in with a strategy. Yes. Yes. And, he, and that made him a master manipulator and negotiator because mm-hmm. other people were like not quite ready for what he brought to the table. Yeah. The other thing that Larry O'Brien did, which I think cannot be overlooked, is he decides to hire David Stern full time. David Stern was part of the NBA's outside counsel with uh, with Proskauer. And Larry O'Brien hired David Stern full time and made David Stern his consigliere. So. David Stern did all the dirty work, did all of the heavy lifting 
that Larry O'Brien really didn't want to do at that time because he was older. He was sort of in his retirement phase. But David Stern took that and just ran with it. And for those two reasons, Larry O'Brien's, I mean, importance in the NBA's narrative cannot be overstated because, just, again, just hiring David Stern saying, look, this guy clearly has what, it's, what it takes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see what this guy can do. I mean, the proof the is right in the guy. pudding. Pick yeah, he sure right did. Guy. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what is your favorite word? This is going to sound really cheesy, but library. Library. What a great word. What a great place. Uh, it's a place for books. Late 14th century from Anglo-French and Old French, meaning collection of books or booksellers shop. And 14th century from the Latin librarium, bookcase, chest for books, and libraria, a bookseller's shop. Uh, Latin libare was originally the inner bark of trees. I love a library. I love a bookseller's shop, as they would say. My two favorite bookshops on earth so far are Shakespeare and Company in Paris and Atlantis Books in Santorini. I also loved the gorgeous A.D. White reading room at Uris Library at Cornell. That was one of my favorite places to study. And uh, on that note, unfortunately, I never managed to check out the library-related item on the uh, very well-circulated 161 things every Cornellian should do before graduating, which was to have sex in the stacks of Olin or Uris libraries. But I do have some friends that did. Speaking of great words, you're going to learn today. The word of the week is organoleptic. And if you can believe it, I heard this word out in the wild. Yes, uh, my great friend and tremendous sommelier, Dan Pilkey, who was a guest on this very podcast a few years ago, came to my parents' house a couple days ago to do a wine tasting in honor of my mom's 70th birthday. And he dropped organoleptic on us right in the middle of a sentence. And I knew I had to learn it and bring it to the masses. Organoleptic, being, affecting, or relating to qualities such as taste, color, odor, and feel of a substance such as a food or drug that stimulate the sense organs. From the French organoleptique, which is from organ plus Greek leptikos, disposed to take. So in a sentence, foam appearance is an organoleptic property of utmost importance for sparkling wine since the first contact between wine and wine taster is visual. Now let's get back to the interview. Okay, so we go from a time when the finals were on tape delay because mm -hmm. the Dukes of Hazard was a far bigger draw. Uh, arenas, arenas were empty. Most teams were losing money. Um, you know, the television contract was incredibly pathetic compared to mm -hmm. football and baseball. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of concerns about whether the increasingly black makeup of teams was going to be something resisted by a white audience. And that came to a head, especially when it came to jump shots and slam dunks. We, most people have heard a bit about reticence to the slam dunk. I had never in my life heard that a jump shot was somehow offensive to the game of basketball. <laughs> How? The, Why? The, the three point line. I mean, the, the, it, well, it the is three point it, for sure. But the idea of leaving your feet to yeah, shoot. Yeah. Back in the fifties, it was wild. It was an affront. It was, it's, it's, isn't that crazy? I mean, I, I can't imagine now. I mean, I am firmly middle-aged and the jump shot is my weapon of choice. Yes, I cannot imagine being in a, in a league where I have a banned move or a move yes. that is frowned upon. E expect it to get the ball all the way there without the help of your legs. Okay. So yeah. So this is a sport that over the years, whether it's the fifties with the jump shot to the mm -hmm. dunk in 79 to the three point, which you just alluded to, which mm -hmm. Bob Ryan to this day, I think, still believes is not actually basketball. Uh, Greg Popovich <laughs> agrees. So he's yes. not in terrible company there, but yes. um, 
they are put in in the context in this book that is accurate, which is that it's all rooted in racism. Mm -hmm. And how does Stern and O'Brien, how does it come up to be that they are able to push back? And I don't want to say bravery. I'm not going to make them white saviors, but there is a either foresight or courage or whatever you want to call it to say, screw off with this. I mm-hmm. believe in pushing forward with things that may be an affront to fragile you know, whiteness and, and then finding that that was a good move and a, and a wise move and part of what helped it become so successful. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point. And I, I think it all has to do with marketing. Now is the, and the NBA back, back in the 1980s, and this was, this was part of David Stern's mantra, he was all about marketing. There's a great line that, that Don Sperling, who was the uh, head of NBA entertainment, the league sort of highlight and video arm, um, said to me, he said, you know, David Stern always told us that it's not what the public thinks about the players, it thinks about the league, it's about how they feel. Under David Stern's watch, you have these public service announcement players, you have David Stern working in tandem with cable partners and with the league to really promote the abilities of the players to not make it about race, to make it about, you know, here's this great pass. Here's this awesome dunk, you know, things that if you're just a, if you're just a basketball fan, Oh, wow. That's amazing. You know, I, I, you know, I don't have to hear about the politics. I can just enjoy, enjoy the guy dunking. So there was, there was that. And, you know, it's also helps too that you have players that know how to play to the camera. If you look at Julius Irving, Julius Irving, I don't think it's nearly enough credit in terms of his basketball influence, but also in terms of what he did for the NBA. He was a perfect ambassador for the NBA for a couple of reasons that I'll get into. But first, anytime the NBA needed someone to do something, to, to pitch something, give a speech, Julius was there. And Julius Irving also was non-offensive. I think the American public has a very high tolerance for a Black athlete if they just play ball and don't say anything political, big smile. big smile. I'm happy to be here. But when that ends, the public's affinity for that athlete just goes out the window. Back in the 1970s and 1980s, there had been all this social tumult. There had been all, you know, all these protests and demonstrations. And the 1970s athlete is sort of in the mold of OJ Simpson, where the athlete kind of knows just that it's best just to sort of just keep right. your mouth shut. Well, do what you need we to remember do. from OJ Simpson made in America that yes. he literally thought of himself as a white man almost. Exactly. He imagined mm-hmm. himself because of the spaces in which he was allowed to move and the kind of ability he'd given himself through his work and his promotions and everything else. He thought of himself as no longer truly being the same as as a black man, which is right. wild. Yeah, that's a great point about OJ. But with Julius Irving, he was in this position where he just knew how to play to the camera. Yeah, he worked at being a basketball player as well as being sort of a, a spokesperson. So if any, so every media member got a perfect Julius Irving quote. If there was a kid, every kid you know got an autograph. Every adult got their hands shook. And Julius Irving just you know it didn't it didn't hurt that Julius Irving was just naturally a nice guy, and he was somebody who was just you know in the confines of the public of the public eye and a basketball court, he did everything right. And that's what the NBA needed. They needed somebody who not only had a, had a great game, whose game was just, was just beautiful to watch and was empirically great. Like you could be a grandfather who doesn't know anything about basketball, but like, Holy cow, look at what Julius is doing against Lakers. Right. So you, you, you've put that along with the, I'm a role model mode and it's just lightning in a bottle. And then you have Larry and magic come along and, what helps that is you have a built-in rivalry 
And you also are able to use race as part of the narrative. So one's white, one's black, one's from the West Coast, one's from the East Coast. You know, they're both part of two-story yeah. rivals. So it's always clumsy on my part when I talk about race. But in this, in the case of Magic versus Larry, race was part of the narrative. And it was something that could be easily packaged and easily marketed. You know, and that, that worked out really, really well. Yeah. It's funny when you say that Stern's mantra sort of was, it's not about what they think of you. It's, it's what they feel about you because it is so sort of undeniable, especially those early years as people are reacting to seeing Jordan fly Mm -hmm. or the moments at the all-star game where you would imagine there might be some offense taken to the brashness and the swagger of wearing his own shoe and the gold chains and everything Mm -hmm. else. But it's too mystifying to be angry about. Yeah. If you want to think about it, you could get yourself worked up. But mm-hmm. instead, you're just feeling too much as you're watching. And that's one of the thrills of basketball that I think is different than a sport like football or something that I love. There mm-hmm. are some athletic moves and some great catches, but there's something about the artistry and beauty of basketball when it's done well, whether that's Jordan or Dr. J or, or you know, Kareem or whoever yeah. um, that that makes it difficult to try to think your way into being critical. And so that was something that Stern was willing to lean into. Mm-hmm. And you talk about, obviously, Magic Johnson had a similar approach to Dr. J. He knew how to smile and do the interviews mm-hmm. and the photos and to really sell himself alongside right. the game that he played. And, you know, this this helps create what we talked about before, the narrative everyone knows, which is you get yeah. Larry and Magic and you get all these players. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you had Stern working behind the scenes on a television deal, starting NBA enterprises, negotiating the first salary cap. Like there were so many business decisions that were necessary to take advantage of the magic that you had of those players on the court that would not have worked and, and it wouldn't have grown the way it did. What do you think was one of the most notable things that Stern did in order to really take that lightning in a bottle and make it not just profitable then, but create something that could be a sustainable league that really took over and, and started to thrive after that? That's a really good question. And, and you know, all those things you mentioned are part of it. Um, I, I think the one thing that David Stern did is he would stress that, look, we're not a sports league. We're the Disney of sports. We're not just a basketball league. It's This is beyond basketball. If you think of Disney, okay? Disney has treasured character. So Mickey Mouse, you have Mickey Mouse, you have Michael Jordan, you the, you have theme parks and guess what, guess what the arenas are now. They're practically theme parks where you go in and you're entertained and you're mm-hmm. treated and you have all these options. Disney has home videos and, and movies. Well, NBA entertainment has movies and entertainment and all this stuff that, you know, I grew up yeah. watching dazzling dunks and basketball bloopers and the merchandising too. All of these things, David Stern followed step by step. He, he wasn't about just, okay, let's just get the TV deal. Nothing was dismissed. Nothing was perfunctory. It was just, look, this is all building toward building a giant brand. And if you look at the NBA today, it is a big honking brand mm-hmm. uh, for better or for worse. And, and that's why I think that's what was so interesting to read about to, in writing and reporting this book was, you know, I, I'm always loathe to use the phrase a simpler time. But in a lot of ways, the NBA in the 70s and 80s was a simpler time. If there weren't as many employees, you could have an idea and it would be heard. You know, it was it was there was this, this sense of creative energy and we're going to we're going to put on a show. And that 
energy, that enthusiasm, that go for broke nature contributed to a business that I think if, if um, I remember Ben, ben Golliver's numbers in Bubble Ball, I think had profits of $8 billion in 2019 or 2020. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. So you mentioned that there were all these different arms that the NBA used and that Stern thought of it as this full entertainment package. Mm -hmm. One of them was really tied to the VCR gaining popularity, which is something I think uh, young people, a VCR was a way to watch movies before streaming and before DVDs. Um, Tell everybody about how the VCR played a role. Well, I'm I'm part of this generation uh, because I remember distinctly being in the second grade, coming home, and my grandmother had bought us a VCR. And for a kid, that would be like my grandfather getting a Cadillac. Mm -hmm. It was such a big deal to get a VCR because the world of entertainment opened up before you had, you could go to the video store, the supermarket and rent a video and just marvel in it, marvel in what was, what was on your TV. Eventually the VCR uh, became more affordable. Instead of renting something, you could actually buy what you wanted to watch. So the NBA was really smart in that CBS Fox, which was the NBA's video distributor, you know, and the NBA Entertainment, they kind of said, look, let's not do the same old, same old. Let's not just do an, a year-end tape. Let's focus on the players. Let's do something on Michael Jordan. You know, and that leads to come fly with me and and you know all those videotapes that would that, that I had all of, of them. Come you had all fly of them with me, Michael Jordan's playground, playground. All I had all of them. I even got I'm, an I'm got a Michael Jordan IMAX movie on VHS, which just makes no sense. I was gonna I saw say it. it. <laughs> I saw it at the IMAX theater, but I was like, listen, I can't not have it if it exists in life. So yeah. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. So they so it was it was a focus on the stars and it was a focus on also the highlights and the goofy stuff that that leads to my one of my favorite videos, um, Dazzling Dunks and Basketball Bloopers, which uh-huh. I watched until <laughs> I can, I still remember, I still have skits memorized yeah. in my head. It led to a just sort of this insatiable market where if you're a kid and you may, okay, maybe you don't see the West Coast games, but guess what? Like you can buy a video cassette of Magic Johnson or Kim Abdul Jabbar and get to know them and mm. get a taste of that. Yeah. And it just went on and on. And with the Michael Jordan videos, the beauty of that in talking to folks at CBS Fox was, all right, well, a new one comes out. Well, guess what? You, you patched it with the old one and you keep those press, you keep the money presses rolling. And it's just, it just goes on and on and on. So really it was, the NBA is able to build narratives with these video cassettes and you need a villain, right? So that's where the bad boys come in. Yeah. So you have, oh, there, you know, you have the, you have magic and Michael and the good guys. And then, oh, the, you know, here's the, Charles here's the Barkley piston bad boy. And the pistons, Charles yeah. Barkley. Yeah. And it's all, it's all part of that Disney storytelling. Storytelling. It's, exactly. it's storytelling. And to your point, it's about, and, and what's fascinating for younger people or even my age to learn is that it wasn't normal for individual athletes to become the face of things mm-hmm. until right around then. This was part of the incredible, um, last dance documentary was that that moment of the Jordan shoe and Nike and and Jordan brand stepping outside but it used to be like a whole team would wear converse yes um, and or a couple different people from different places would all be in an ad together but it was a big leap and I think it was David Halberstrom's playing for keeps I can't remember but I think that was the one I remember distinctly reading it in high school and there was a moment where he described 
the Nike execs or, or, or it, they weren't sure about this young black man and whether white mm-hmm. families would want him in their homes, quite literally on a poster in their child's bedroom or otherwise. And he walked down the stairs at the restaurant to meet them and smiled. And that's it. They said, yeah. never mind. We're not worried anymore. This guy's got it. And yes. Jordan was this massive turning point for the mm-hmm. individual athlete. And that's in part because of the NBA's willingness and desire to showcase an individual athlete as a character, as part of the larger story that they were telling. And it made people want to learn more about them and truly bring them into their own home. So the, the VHS tapes and all of that come mm-hmm. together. Another element that comes in is rap music. And this is another choice that they have to yeah. embrace or push away culture that feels right and connected to the sport or could feel risky depending on whether you felt like you might alienate an audience. So how did they decide that? And Marvin Gaye, certainly not rap or hip hop, but there's a tie there in terms of just the vibes around his performance. So how did music and, and the NBA work together? That's a, that's a, that's a great question. And you know, yeah, there is, there is Marvin Gaye, I think is the the foundation of that. Um, But I think what the NBA did really well and is that, they weren't going to go with public enemy for an event, or they weren't going to go with uh, NWA. They were going to go with safe for us. So they would use kid and play, you know, yeah. because again, it was, that was more about, about entertainment. They were more about, it wasn't, so, they weren't so much, they were a safer choice. And that's the beauty. That's what happens. I think when the NBA kind of gets into that mode of, okay, we should really incorporate rap music into our videos and into our arenas. If it, it, around that time, rap and hip hop had really started to become more mainstream and it was becoming more like top 40 music in a lot of ways. So that, that kind of was, that kind of was a perfect, again, perfect timing where, you know, rap becomes more mainstream. It doesn't become as, as aggressive or as outsidery, if that's a word. And it becomes, it becomes part of the popular culture. And there are entertainers that aren't as, um, I guess, for lack, of, for lack of a better term, offensive to general audiences. I mean, if you think about it, ha- Hammer comes out around 89, Can't Touch becomes a giant hit in 1990. If you go, if you, if you watch Prince, the, probably Fresh right? Prince, yeah. Starts talking about, I'm going to rap without swearing. And- exactly. And then you have, you know, Vanilla Ice for better force comes along <laughs> a little bit after that. And if you, if you look at, if you watch the, um, the Bad Boys documentary, um, I think, oh, actually, no, it's the Pistons championship video from 8990. Can't Touch This is played all the time <laughs> it is everywhere so and and, and if you listen to if and that's it's it's to the point now where if you if you listen to like adult contemporary classic uh stations which i do because i'm old and lame <laughs> can't touch this is played regularly that's funny and it's just and so there was so it was it was a safe teenage choice right. and you know and here's the thing you are gonna you're, you might lose customers but guess what the young people are who you want to get because they they're going to they're going to go to their parents. They make it cool. Right. Drive purchasing. And then you've created a lifelong customer. Right. Exactly. Because, look, I am going to walk and it's it's it stands this way. It stands this way today. I Most most contemporary music isn't my bag, which is fine. But I'm not watching an NBA game to get swept up in the spectacle. I'm watching an NBA game to see Giannis, you know, dunk from the free throw line. Right. I'm watching to see Chris Paul run an offense like like Leonard Bernstein conducts an mm-hmm. orchestra. Right. That's what I'm watching for. The NBA doesn't need to recruit me. They don't need to court me. But the kids, they that's who they you. need to court. Yeah, you I'm, have I'm nostalgia not going anywhere. and tradition and history that you that you they they, they cultivated by grabbing you 
when when you were the age that they were that they were exactly they went they grabbed me they grabbed me with with the videos they grabbed me with with NBA inside stuff with Ahmad Rashad and Will Obey, mm-hmm. you know, host, you know, kind of Summer making, Sanders. I Summer think Sanders came in to replace Will Obey. Yeah, making that was making, my Saturday. Yeah, it was my Saturday too. But like when they paired, you know, when they when they did when they did jam session, when they paired like the Fresh Prince or you know maybe like a I don't know like Pearl Jam with clips, like right that got right. me. That got they me. did it so. I'm curious when you were doing your research for this book, were there mm-hmm. things that you found in, in, and maybe they didn't even make the book, but that yeah. they tried that sucked or that didn't stick. Was there something, maybe even David Stern, <laughs> who's remembered for all the good things he did, that it was just like, yeah, not that one. You know what? That's, that is, that's an excellent question. And I wish I had an answer for you, but he, I, I will tell you this. One of the sources for the book was Steve Bornstein, who was um, a former uh, president of ESPN. And I, I talked to him and he told me, he said, you know, one time David came to me with an idea that was so bad. I just, I, I just, <laughs> I, I had to just dismiss it out of hand. And I begged Steve to tell me what this was, begged him, but he, he wouldn't tell me. Um, you know, I think if you look at the, if you look at the mistakes, I think the mistakes that were made came later on with the dress code and with the, the change of the, the change yeah. in that basketball. It's weird too, that, cause that feels like uh, operating out of fear in a way that they hadn't earlier when they'd been willing to embrace some of the things mm-hmm. that dress code and, and the reaction specifically to most people thought it was almost directly to Allen Iverson. Now again, yes. Allen Iverson, isn't the Ma- magic Johnson, Dr. J, mm-hmm. but by that point you would assume that you could have folks like Allen Iverson that would appeal to some and not others and not feel like you had to control it. And yet they did in that moment. Yeah, no, I think to me, the, the, to me, if you're, if you're looking at, if you're writing the biography of David Stern, I think the dress, the dress code was really when he, he kind of lost, lost right. the room. The I mean, and there are other incidents yeah. too, you know, the, the, the labor disagreements and, you know, uh, you know, he, but, you know, but I think the dress code was when he, I think was, as you put it, it was more reactionary. It was more, I don't understand this. And I, I want to stop this because I, I just, this is just beyond my, my comprehension. But I think, but look, I think that's something that happens as we, as we all Age. get older, Absolutely. you know, we're less willing to take risks. We're less willing to be, um, to be accepting of things that are different. Well, and we've lost touch with what the yes. younger generation is offended by or moved by. And I mean, that's happening a ton now when it comes to LGBTQIA yes. and all sorts of other stuff, clothes, bodily mm-hmm. expressions, gender expressions, like older people are like aghast at so yeah. many things that the average high schooler is just like, eh, that's what, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. feel that's it. What and it you is. have to work hard and be intentional about not losing that connection to it, or you will become someone who's old and reactionary and yeah. loses that ability to connect. I mean, I, that, that, and I, and I, I'm constantly on guard about that myself. There's a lot of things that I, that I'm, I'm confused by or, or like, really? And again, if you're a 15 year old, it's like, that's eh, no big deal. Yeah, like that, right. that person's doing this thing. And, but yeah, as you get older, you, you not only, but the, you, know, you get older, but with the NBA at that time, I think that dress, that dress code ban was like 2004, 2005 around that area. At that point, like the NBA is not this scrappy, hungry little yeah. business. You can afford it, to lean into what made you who you were instead of. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, exactly. the the book kind of ends around 1990. Um, mm-hmm. It was not until 93 that Fox outbid CBS for football rights. And all of a sudden sports deals just went insane across everything. Yeah. It was not until much later that, you know, the best shows in any year are all sports. In fact, I saw someone 
uh, comment that when the book ended around 90, 1990, less than 25% of top rated shows in any given year were live sports. And now it's closer to 90%. Obviously that's because of, you know, you can watch everything and binge and stream and sports is yeah. one of the few things we want to watch live and interact mm -hmm. with people while we're watching. Why did you decide that the book should end at 1990 when there is so much that happened between then and now that tells the story of the league? Well, there are two reasons for that. First, I felt that after 1990 has been done to death. That's the dream team. That's Jordan's right. run. That's um, the international game really taking off. Globalization. Yeah. Exactly. I wanted to look at how we got there. I wanted to look at the preface to the mainstream success. And to me, ending on the NBC deal felt like a really nice place to end it. The other part too is, to me, the NBC deal is where the NBA becomes the NBA in all caps and big, bold letters. So it felt like a really good place to end it. And the other thing too is, I don't know where you end the story after if I go into 1990. Right. Could keep you know, going. I could I could probably keep going until and, and keep writing it until now. So 1989, 1990 felt like a really good place to end it before you know what happens after that. The Dream yeah. Team, uh, Magic retires, Bird retires. You know, NBC becomes this ubiquitous. Uh, NBA and NBC eleven ubiquitous. next to Michael Jordans that aren't actually the next Michael Jordan. Exactly, yeah. Harold Miner. Well, that'll be the that'll be the uh, the sequel from from prime time to streaming or something like that. Will be the uh, the next. I, one. I, I thought you were going to tell me. I, I thought you were going to say I should write a Harold Miner bi uh, biography. Oh yeah, obviously we've all been clamoring <laughs> for that. Whatever happened to Baby Jordan? Um, yes. I wanted to quickly before we wrap. The last line in the book is unexpected because you've you've covered so much. And then okay. in the end, you say you list a bunch of names, Paula Hanson, Don Sperling, Brian McIntyre, mm -hmm. Steve Mills, Bill Marshall, Leah Wilcox, the men and women who made the NBA. They, of course, have been mentioned and all of their inputs and insights have been chronicled. But still, rarely is an NBA history book going to end with people who were in behind the scenes, part of the cog and the machine that made it. But that feels like a through line in this is to understand and, and to really learn how it required the business side and the marketing side. So why did you want to close with those names and those people? For the exact reason you mentioned. Because and I'm, I'm so happy you brought that point up. <laughs> Look, we all know the history of the NBA as told through the principles, the David Stearns, the, the Michael Jordans, the Magic Johnsons, so forth and so on. But there are so many people who work tirelessly, who are passionate about the NBA, who made the NBA great. And you wouldn't know these people if they walked into the room and sat next to you on the couch. So I wanted this book to be about the people, the key figures who turned the NBA into what it is today. And there are people like Bill Marshall, who was the apparel czar who took it upon himself to make team gear widely available. I wanted to mention Leah Wilcox, who was sort of like the, the den mother of NBA entertainment, who everyone just sort of went to with their problems, who, who was there when, when people were new and didn't know, the, didn't know New York City. I wanted to mention you know, Don Sperling, who made NBA entertainment into this you know, giant media arm. So to me, those people are so important, even though in the history books, they're, maybe they're barely mentioned in a footnote. And to me, this book doesn't get written without those people. I mean, this is their book as much as it is mine. I'm just lucky enough and grateful enough to be able to tell their story. So it just so that that last line felt like an appropriate point 
The acknowledgements are also lengthy. And so you make sure to take the time to think. It's probably the longest acknowledgements I've ever read in a book. Um, I'm so sorry. I skimmed I'm it. I'm so sorry. Uh, but um, it's a great book. And the acknowledgements are necessary because as I pointed out earlier, the research is copious. The amount of people, is, you spoke to over 300. So a lot of people had to come together and be willing to give you the time to remember this stuff and recount yeah. it. So that's, that's how you keep these things written and chronicled for future uh, it's a great book. It's fantastic. Uh, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Before I let you go, you do have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition is part of ESPN Nation, brought to you by Dr. Pepper. College football is back, and so are the fans. Return to glory with Fansville by Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition 10 question speed round. Number one, your current career is canceled. What do you do instead? <sighs> what do I do instead? Go to grad school and pray. That's, that's... Okay. All right. <laughs> Number two, you. Uh, what's the most scared you've ever been? Most scared I've ever been. Um, summer of 2000, 2001 quitting the Courier News, which is a local Gannett newspaper in central Jersey and leaving in a cloud of failure after having, being basically told by my editors that I wasn't good enough to work at a crappy local New Jersey paper <laughs> and not knowing what was going to happen next. Oh, that's, the scared, that's the most scared I've ever been. Uh, number three, you can be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? Being the best father I can be. Oh, that's cute. How many kids do you have? I have one. What and how old? Uh, Olivia will be five on November 18th. Oh my gosh. So She's cute. adorable. She's great. Cute. I love yeah. her. Uh, number four, what current celebrity from music, politics, TV, or sports would you most like to be your best friend? Uh, see, celebrity, I would say, um, you know what? Let's go with, you know, Dave Grohl seems like he'd be a really cool hang. Oh my God. Great answer. He Thank seems you. like the best. No one's ever said that. And everybody should. He seems so cool. Uh, number five, what's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? People who cut in line on the, at the supermarket. People who cut in line anywhere. Those people are the worst. And I let it, them hear it. I never let them get away from it. I nearly got into a brouhaha at a sort of a boutique um, convenience store in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, because somebody cut in line with me. It got I almost ugly. got in a, a kerfuffle at, at, at uh, Versailles <laughs> in French. I used the most French I've ever tried in a yelling match with a guy and his family. Oh, uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Uh, I've been on this planet for a long time, so I've been embarrassed plenty of times. So to come up with one answer is really hard, but uh, let me try. Uh, most embarrassed I've ever been, I would say in seventh grade, I did the morning announcements at, at my middle school. And I flubbed and flailed and, yeah. and I mean, it wasn't, it was, if you've listened to me talk for the last hour, <laughs> you have a taste of what it was. Now imagine. And then you became a writer. <laughs> a, a, for that very reason, there was no, there was no career for me in radio <laughs> a, after that. That avenue shut down like, oh, like, like you wouldn't believe. Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? My ability to uh, not worry. I worry all the time oh. about myriad of things and it is an albatross around my neck. 
can I please direct you to my most recent podcast? Please. Uh, one of the most recent ones with John Mark, who is about uh, positivity and gratitude practice and how chronic pessimism and worry is one of the key contributors to low morale and lack of happiness. And we can actually train our brain away from it and create synapses in our brain so that it is more likely to go to positivity instead of anxiety and stress. You can actually uh, I, change your brain if you just put in a little work every day. I will listen to that. My wife, my wife, Laura, is very big into meditation and mindfulness. Yeah. That's sort of her. She's a piano teacher and that's one of her components. Oh, nice. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I, I need to do start a checking job out. Start checking out neuroplasticity and positivity work and it will change your life and your anxiety. I will. Um, also, yeah, mindfulness is huge because if you worry too much about something and then it happens, now you've suffered it twice. If you worry too much about something and it didn't happen, then you've caused yourself suffering for no reason at all because it there didn't happen. As Tom Petty said, most things I worry about never happen anyway. Always good to remember. Uh, number fun. eight, any musician or band alive or dead can play your next party. Who is it? James Brown. Ooh, that would be a hell of a party. Oh, James Brown. I, you know, I would, I would take the lineup that featured Bootsy Collins on bass, okay. uh, Fred Wesley on the, uh, on the trombone. Uh, if I can get the two drummers, uh, working, I would, yeah. I would take that in a heartbeat. I would, I, I would avoid probably the after party with him as a, as a person, <laughs> but I would, I would enjoy the music uh, a lot. I'd be uh, arrested if, yeah. if that were, yeah. Uh, number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? Here's a good one. Not enjoying my teenage years and 20s as much mm. as I should have. Um, I mentioned to you earlier, I was a chronic worrier. Um, yeah. Still am a little bit, but I was always focused on, well, the future has, to, I have to get to this point at this age and do this at this age. And I have to be, and I spent all of my a good 20 years dwelling on all of those things that I didn't get a chance to, to actually enjoy really being a kid. And yeah. That's something that I, I wish I had. Uh, that, that's probably my biggest failure is that I was I was the worst teenager in the world. <laughs> like I was in terms of in terms of enjoying myself and living life yeah. to its fullest. I was the worst. It's wild down. how much we want to grow up. And then you get older and you're like, what? That was wonderful. That was blissful. <laughs> what are we doing? Uh, number 10, what three individual words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Empathetic. Kind. And loyal. Mm, those are good ones. Final bonus question. Who should I have on the podcast? It can be anyone from any industry, just someone I might find interesting. Someone you might find interesting. You know what? You should have, I mean, just, I mean, he'll, he'll never agree to this, but you should have my dad on. Oh, because, okay. Because my dad is, dude. my dad is, is a, fa is a fascinating dude. I mean, he was a, he was, um, oh, he's still alive, obviously, mm -hmm. but he's um, born in Buenos Aires. Um, he moved, moved to, uh, the, moved to Queens, New York when he was 18 years old, went right into that lifestyle and just, um, just was relentless in succeeding on his own terms. He, cool. he went to nights, he went to night school and worked a full-time job. It took him 12 years to graduate college, but he did it with, mm -hmm. uh, English as his second language. And, you know, he, he taught me to be, um, I like to think a good citizen and a, uh, a good writer, but what's yeah. important about him too, is he, he's also the most well-read man I've ever met in my life. He has, he is, he is deeply, he's a deep intellectual, but he also, he, he's also somebody who just 
knows how to do things. I think that every man, every person you know how to do. Yeah. Which is like getting lost by the generation. We just, we're not, we're not nearly as handy as we should all be anymore. Unfortunately at like fixing things and just knowing how to do things. Yeah. It's a lost art. But he's somebody, I mean, he's somebody to me, I, I just think is very cool is 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 admirable so yeah yeah it's so nice to hear you talk about him that way you clearly admire him a ton that's so cool i and my mom too this yeah oh sarah was my pleasure so great to have you on everybody obviously should go check out the book and read more about the the details are spectacular the quotes are great and everything so uh thanks so much for doing this sarah was my pleasure thank you that's what she said oh yeah one more thing So this is going to be a place for rants and raves and everything in between. Sometimes I'll complain about something. Sometimes I'll share a story that I read that I thought you should check out. Whatever's on my mind. I want you to go watch Highlights of the Sky's unbelievable playoff run and their victory over the Phoenix Mercury. Candace Parker injury early in the season slowed them down. They finished just 16 and 16 in the regular season. Had the sixth seed needed to win multiple elimination games at the start of their playoff run. But they stuck together. They never gave up, even when they were down 14 in the third quarter of the deciding game, and they won it all. So go watch CP, Sloot, Quiggs, Copper, Steph, Diamond, the whole team. Recognize the fantastic level of play, the competitiveness of the WNBA at 25. Maybe go buy some Sky Gear, get tickets to your local team for next season, spread the word. The WNBA is so important. And if you go to all the social handles for the Sky, WNBA, highlight her, ESPNW, you can find amazing highlights and check out the whole run. It was fantastic. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you've got guest suggestions, questions, or more. And you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please. Give a review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.